0: And I had the gun in my hand, and I said, hold it, I'll shoot. And the boy was running down the hill, and I put the gun in the air, and I shot three times in the air, and then the boy was out, oh, 225, 250 feet, I guess, way out, and I shot one shot in his direction, and he was on top of the hill.
1: That's the voice of Officer Alvin Johnson, a white police officer with the San Francisco Police Department. It's Tuesday, September 27, 1966, and he's standing in the hallway of a police station, telling reporters about how he shot an unarmed 16-year-old black boy named Matthew Johnson in the back.
0: He was on top of a hill and he didn't come back or up from the other side of the hill. And I figured, well, I guess he's hiding down there. And I quickly ran down and expected to find the boy kind of scared down there. And I ran down there and I saw the boy lying flat in his face and blood out of his mouth. I saw some woman, I yelled her to get an ambulance and call the police and get some help. And the woman came over and I said, do you know anything about helping this boy? Because the boy was gasping for air. And she said, I'm a nurse. And I said, well, do whatever you can for him. And there wasn't very much you could do. It was all, I don't feel so good.
1: The Bayview-Hunter's Point uprising took place in September 1966, but I'd never heard of it until I wrote about it for San Francisco magazine. It's way too big a story to condense for one episode of this podcast, but the parallels between what's happening now and what happened then are so strong I couldn't leave it alone. What I found then, it's a pretty familiar story today. An unarmed black person didn't pose a threat to anybody, dies at the hands of a white police officer, Within hours, enraged members of the community uh, took to the streets and started an uprising. The city responded by blockading the neighborhood, calling in the National Guard, and declaring a days long curfew. And then, after things settled down, the cop who killed Matthew Johnson was back on the job and reinstated with back pay in a few weeks. His family sued the city for a little over a million dollars, but the coroner ruled the shooting as, quote, an excusable homicide and said that accident and misfortune were responsible for Matthew Johnson's death. His family's attorney, Johnny Cochran, O.J. Simpson's defense lawyer, was not surprised by the verdict. And the San Francisco Chronicle ran an editorial saying it was, quote, delighted with the verdict and that the decision was the only proper verdict, their words. Four years later, Matthew Johnson's family settles for about $10,000, which is less than 1% of what they initially sought. The four police officers who killed, who murdered George Floyd, have been charged with murder and aiding and abetting. We'll see what happens next. In 1966, San Francisco was one of several cities that saw widespread unrest after violent clashes between black residents and the police. So as a result, people had kind of a template to work from But when you put those moving images in a split screen with images from the last few weeks or Los Angeles 1992 or Oakland 2009 or Ferguson 2014 or Baltimore 2015, Milwaukee, Charlotte the year after in 2016, the the behavior, it plays out in like an, an eerie parallel. Um, a man I interviewed for my article about the Bayview-Hunters Point uprising, he said that he and his friends, they didn't know what to do. They knew they wanted to uh, express their anger, they knew they wanted to act out and strike back in some sense, but they didn't know how to model that behavior. Um, and so they literally copied what they'd seen on television from other uprisings in other places like Watts and places like that. I, I, Just like black people in Minneapolis today, or Atlanta, or New York, or any place else in the world, people in Bayview-Hunters Point in 1966 knew they were being policed differently than white people who lived in the rest of San Francisco. The week before last, I was walking home from my local boarded-up drugstore, and I ran into, I guess he's really my only black neighbor. He's in his late 60s. I asked if he remembered the 1966 uprising, Um, and he said he remembered the National Guard troops coming in, because the troops, uh, they bivouacked at Kizar Stadium, which is not too far from where we both live. And then, unprompted, unsolicited, he launched into a tirade about what's happening now. We were then under a citywide curfew. And he said he was totally comfortable with the idea of people looting stores downtown today. because. Quote, that's the only time they pay attention. And then he, uh, he cursed and he said, burn it all down. Because, quote, that's the only time they pay attention. Unquote. I was surprised by how angry he was. I just asked the question and I think, I think because there aren't too many black people to talk to, about things like this in San Francisco, uh, he felt really comfortable opening up. So when he said, "Burn it all down," it it got my attention. Every uprising is preceded by an inciting incident. In 1966, it was the shooting of Matthew Johnson by a police officer. Today was the murder of George Floyd at the hands of four police officers. I know I'm supposed to say alleged murder. No one's been tried or convicted. But I can't really I can't force my mouth to make those sounds. We all we all saw it on television on a virtual loop. I can't tell you how many times I watched those eight minutes and forty six seconds. This is hard to talk about. I don't I don't know you. And this is probably the most personal episode of my podcast I've ever recorded or maybe will record. And I'm not sure why I'm talking about this, other than I feel like I have to. And compounding this. I recorded this already. And through error, it failed to save and deleted, and now I find myself having to re-record this and relive. It doesn't matter. It does I mean the point is if he could suffer through it the least I could do is watch. That's how I was feeling about the video. I felt like I was doing George Floyd a disservice by looking away. I mean, they took took everything from George Floyd, everything from him, and then they killed him. They took his dignity and his pride and his sense of safety. I realized I couldn't watch the video anymore. I couldn't witness it anymore. If you're not black, try to imagine what it's like to see... Images of people who look like you being brutalized by police every day. I mean, you pull up social media to share a thought or see what's happening in the world, and there's always a new video of a police officer confronting or threatening or taunting or beating or lecturing a black person. Always. I don't think there's another group of people whose abuse and debasement is captured in such a holistic way and then presented for us all to watch It's an everyday thing, it's relentless. Every day, someone facing down a police officer and swallowing their fear. And then there's rapid escalation that usually ends with violence. And then the video stops abruptly. Imagine what that would do to you over time. So that video is why the street in front of the White House has been renamed Black Lives Matter. And it's why statues of slave traders and colonizers are being taken down around the world. When I researched the Bayview-Hunters Point uprising, I couldn't find any eyewitness accounts of the shooting from people who lived in the projects where it happened. And it happened in the middle of an afternoon where people were, you know, there, home from school, parents with their kids. This guy's firing gunshots in the air, he says, as a warning shot. The point is, as far as I know, I was the first reporter to interview an eyewitness to Matthew Johnson's shooting. That afternoon in 1966, the boy ran away from Officer Johnson and he hid behind the home of Essie Webb on, I think it was Navy Road. And Essie's future son-in-law, Oscar James, was hanging up the family's laundry that afternoon. He was standing several feet away when Officer Alvin Johnson shot Matthew Johnson in the back. And in the clip you heard at the top of the episode, the policeman says he fired three warning shots and then one shot in the boy's direction. I think that's a quote. Oscar James told me that the officer balanced his gun on his left wrist and sighted down the barrel before shooting Matthew Johnson in the back. I'm hearing people describe this moment as a breaking point, but I think it's impossible to say we're still very much in this moment. It's too early to know whether we're in a time of protracted change, but it certainly feels different. After the uprisings in the 1960s, there was tangible change. The federal government launched a program called Model Cities, which basically created community-directed funding for anti-poverty programs. So Model Cities allowed members of the community to get together, form committees, and then plan and allocate resources for social services, education, rebuilding, job training. It made a difference. Today we know legislation like this would go no place. It would be a political non-starter. I'm sure on Fox News they would call it reparations or something, I don't know. But Oscar James went from being a gang member who had been shot by police to joining these model cities project committees. And he eventually worked his way up to be a pretty senior person in the organization of these community-based boards, these planning commissions. And he kind of parlayed that into working in the construction trade. When I interviewed him from the article I wrote, he drove me around Bayview Hunters Point proudly for like an hour, showing me a school and a community center and other resources that he helped plan and build as a young man. And they're still there today. People in Bayview-Hunters Point suddenly had a seat at the table, but after those uprisings, when Richard Nixon was running for president on a law and order platform, America stopped being interested in anti-poverty programs. They had seen enough of cities tearing themselves apart and on fire every summer, and so model cities ended in 1974. To quote Martin Luther King's daughter, Bernice King, quote, even the statement, let's invite more black people to the table implies ownership of the table and control of who is invited, unquote. So here we are again. America kicked the can down the road is what we do. This has happened several times before I was born. Tulsa, Greenwood, destruction of communities. Skip ahead several decades. Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Fast forward, Rodney King. Fast forward, pick your choice from several killings of the police, black men, and the age of social media. Just pick one. We have these moments, and we look at it, and then we decide it's too much, and we we put our hands in our pockets, and we keep walking. What I think is changing is empathy. I think the video of the killing of George Floyd force people to take a side force people to realize that this is what life is like for some people and you're either okay with that or you're not at the same time America has kicked the can down the road as far as race since the beginning it's what we do so I hope this is the denouement of a story that's arcing towards some just resolution I don't know what that looks like I can say, reporting on the Bayview-Hunters Point uprising and watching the murder of George Floyd, neither of these things have changed the way I, I see the police or my relationship to them. But it does make it a lot easier to confess something that I've long felt but was unwilling to articulate, which is, as a black man in America, the police scare the hell out of me. Audio Officer Johnson was recorded by k TV News and was obtained from the Bay Area Television Archive at San Francisco State University. This episode was produced by Catherine Springer. Music was written and performed by Michael Tritter. And the artwork was created by Cynthia Vega. Thanks very much for listening.